was Nick Sid. My name is Evan Calvin. Uh, I serve as a pastor, I guess college pastor at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Um, and I lead uh, another college ministry here on campus, Emmanuel College Collective. And so it's always a joy uh, to hear uh, about what the Lord is doing here at Crew and to hear about it through Powell and to hear about it through John. And so uh, I'm really honored to be able to open up God's word with you all uh, today. And so if you have your Bibles, you can open up your Bible to, Bible to the book of Titus. Titus, and I'm going to be in chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 14. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for this day, for this night. God, I'm just reminded that your mercies are new every morning and every day, every breath is a gift that you give to us. And so God, forgive us for the times that we take these things for granted. Forgive us for the times that we don't return thankfulness and praise to you, as John said, because you're simply worthy. And how much more because you saved us. God, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for every student in this room and for the ways that you've gifted them. And, and, and even for their willingness to come here tonight to hear the preaching of your word. And so, God, I pray that you would bless this time for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to ask you guys a question. And I want to ask you guys this, this question, and I want you to actually answer me. So sometimes, you know, you talk and it's like a hypothetical thing, but I want to hear some answers. What, right, when you leave this school, or maybe when you leave your job, or maybe when you leave the church, or ultimately when you leave this world, what do you want your legacy to be? What do you want people to say about you when you're gone? Just that I magnify Christ in whatever I do. Amen. That's a great answer. And I never forgot my first love. He never forgot his first love. Amen. These are all things that are really good things. And for some of you, maybe you're quiet because you've never thought about that. You've never thought about the fact that one day, believe it or not, you're going to leave this school. You're going to leave behind friends and loved ones. If you go from one job to another job, you're going you're to leave behind people that you've interacted with and worked with. Maybe as you go from one church to another church, you're going to leave behind people that you spent life with and loved on and they've loved you. And ultimately, when you leave this earth, you're going to leave behind family, friends, maybe some children. And so to think about what you want people to think of you, not in a nar narcissistic way of like, oh man, that person was so awesome, but just in a real like, this is who this person was. Maybe for some of you, uh, what you'll want them to remember you for has to do with your personality or your giftings. Maybe uh, your success or your character. But whatever it is, I just want you to think about the fact that your, your legacy matters. Your legacy matters because in many ways it will be the synopsis of your life. What was the thing, the way in which this person lived and, and what, what do I remember about them? And when you're gone, the most important question that people that, that you can really uh, that people can ask about you or say about you is what type of life you lived. 
And for the Christian, it'll be what type of life you live in Christ. And so as I was thinking about, man, what should I teach? By the way, how much time do I have? 25. So we're talking about like uh, 9 o'clock-ish? No, 9, 8.50? 9-ish. 9-ish. All right. All right. I can go. I don't want to go too long. So as I was thinking about what to teach to you all and, and what to set before you, what I wanted you all to walk away from this time, I, I wanted to set before you this reality of a legacy. And in many ways, that's what the book of Titus is about. Titus is a young pastor, and Paul, his, his mentor, has left him in this town in Crete, and he, he wants him to put the church in order. He wants to put the church in order, and the way he's to put the church in order is two things. He's to teach them right doctrine, the gospel, what it means to follow Jesus, and he's to teach them the life that should always accompany the gospel. And in many ways, if you're a Christian, that will be your legacy. Did you believe the gospel, and did you live a life that adorns the gospel? When people look at your life, will they be tempted or at least convinced to believe in Jesus Christ because they see your life? And if you're anything like me, you might be like, man, living, living a Christian life is hard, right? I fail often. I want to do really well, but sometimes I don't. If I'm honest, I just, I sin sometimes, and, and sometimes if we're really honest, we're okay with our sin more than we should be, and so the Christian life can be tough, and so how do you leave a legacy? How do you live a life that when people look at your life, they can say, that, that's a person that loves Jesus, and Titus is about that very thing. In this, in this passage of scripture that we're going to talk about, Paul encourages these Christians on how they can live a life that adorns the gospel. Look back up at, at verse 10. He's talking about uh, servants, how they serve. He says, not pilfering, not stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of our God and Savior. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. Paul's saying what his mission is. And he says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. That's gospel. And then notice what he says, which accords with godliness. Knowing the gospel should always produce a particular type of life in the Christian. And if you're like, I don't know if I can do that. I have, I have, I have, I have great encouragement for you. And so what I want to show you in this passage is three things. I want to show you three things about grace. How do you leave a good legacy? It's, it's by receiving and applying God's grace to your life. And so the three things I want to show you about grace is I want to define what grace is. I want to tell you what grace accomplishes. And I want to tell you how grace accomplishes it. So what grace is, what grace does or accomplishes, and, what it, and how it accomplishes it or how it does it. The first thing I want us to see from this passage as you look at it, it says, it says for, right, for, that's, that's giving you a reason. Paul is about to give you a reason for some things that he's just been saying. And so he's been saying things like older women, teach the younger women how to love their husbands and love their families. Older men, set an example to the younger men. And younger men, you're to be self-controlled. And so he's going through and he's giving these, uh, these, these orders, as it were, this, this way of living to the Christian community. And he knows that in the back of their mind, they're like, how in the world, how do we do that? And he says, I've got your answer. For, because the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
Who can tell me what grace is? What is grace? Well, I didn't think you are really taking the test today, but yeah. Undeserved kindness. Anybody got another one? Another different definition? So, unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. That's the one I was top figure was going to come. I want to challenge you all today. People often say undeserved or unmerited favor, but I want to push you. There's an old word that people use when they talk about grace that I actually think is more accurate than unmerited. Anybody familiar with like Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts? Right, so when you do something good, what do you get? A badge. You get like a merit badge, right? So when you do something good, you get one of these little things, you get to pin it on. It's a merit badge. It's, it's a mark in the good column. Unmerited means you haven't done anything good or bad. It just means you're neutral. But there's another term that we don't think about, and it's called demerited, right? When you do something wrong, you get a tally in the demerit column. And when it talks about the grace of God has appeared, I want you to always think when you say grace in the Bible, it's the merited grace. What that means is, is it isn't grace that just comes like, oh, God just wants to do something good and we're in neutral. The grace that comes to us is God's favor to us, even though everything we've done is to deserve God's wrath and his punishment. And it's the merited grace. And that's so much more different. Because let's say your parents, right? When you're a kid, your parents say, okay, if you obey me, then I'm going to give you, you know, whatever, like cookies, right? When I was a young kid, I liked snacks, right? So I get a cookie. And so, you know, I really want to obey. And if I obey, I get a cookie. Well, let's say in a given day, I just don't really do anything. I'm not really bad and I'm not really good. And they give me a cookie anyway. That's, that's unmerited favor. I really haven't done anything. I've just kind of been neutral. But let's say in a given day, I destroy my room. I, I tear up my mother's, uh, I, I used to tear up everything. But I tear up her glasses and all these very things. I make a, a, a mess of the house. When she tells me to come here, I run the opposite way. And at the end of the day, my mother comes and says, all right, son, I love you. And so I'm going to still give you a cookie, even though you've done everything to deserve a whooping and not the cookie. That's grace. That's the grace where you've done everything to, to, to deserve the opposite response. And yet it says the grace of God has appeared. And so grace is the merited grace. It's, it's grace in which it comes to you even in the midst of your complete and utter unworthiness, even in the midst of you doing everything to deserve something completely different than you get. God says, I'm going to give you grace in Christ Jesus. The second thing I want us to see here as we think about what grace is, is why we need grace. Notice what it says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. If you need to be saved, then what does that mean? It means you've done something. You've done something wrong. Right? As Ephesians 2 says, right, we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. We, we, we were dead. We were unable to come to God. We did not want God. Our situation was bleak and it was dire. We needed salvation. We needed something outside of ourselves to reach down in spite of ourselves and give us salvation. 
And what Paul is saying here is that exactly what we needed is exactly what we've received from God. Instead of giving us his wrath and his judgment, he meets us with his demerited, his unearned, undeserved, I'm going to give you what you totally don't need or what you totally don't deserve. I'm going to pour out my grace in your life. Grace is always seen as grace when it's understood in light of our sin. We oftentimes love grace, but we never want to talk about our sin. And I'm not one of those people who's about beating people up, but the gospel, grace, is kind of like one of those Sour Patch kids, right? Right, first they're sour and it just, it just hurts. When you're talking about sin, it's like, ooh, and it just makes you cringe. You can't hardly sit in your seat, but if you suck on one of those things long enough, it gets sweet and you enjoy it. Or Warhead, back in my day, I used to love Warheads, man. You just pop those things out, and I mean, it, it'll kill you for the first 15 seconds. But eventually that thing is sweet, and you love it. Well, that's the gospel. It'll rip you up for about 15 seconds. But once you get through the sin part, once, you, once you've diagnosed your heart and seen your need, then you're at a place to say, God, I, I don't deserve what you've done for me. How could you do such an amazing thing for me? And so grace will always be most clearly understood in light of our sin and our need. And if you never get to the sin and the need part, you will never appreciate the goodness of God's amazing grace. And this grace comes through the person and work of Jesus. But we're going to get there, so don't think I've left that part out. So we see what grace is, but now I want to focus on what grace does. Notice back in our passage, for the grace of God has appeared. This idea of appearance is something that's always been there, but now has been made manifest. And so when we think about that, it's this idea of amazing grace. I once was blind, and now I see. I once was lost, but now I'm found. It's always been there. God's grace has always been there in Christ. But the moment that he opens up your eyes to see the beauty of Christ, it saves you. And the minute it saves you, you get enrolled in the school of training grace. One guy said, one cannot claim to have received the benefits of saving grace without being enrolled in the school of training grace. One cannot claim to have received the benefits of saving grace without being enrolled in the school of training grace. Notice our text. For the grace of God has appeared for all people, that's all types of people, black, white, brown, purple, male, female, all types of people, not all people everywhere, but all <coughs> types of people. But notice what it does in verse 12. The same grace that saves you is the same grace that trains you. And it might not hit you now, but that is an amazing fact. Because here's the deal. What did you do to earn salvation? Answers nothing. In fact, you did everything to not earn salvation. And God saves you in spite of yourselves. And what do you need to do in order to make it to the end? The answer is continue to trust in God's grace. Yes, you're called to do something. I want to get into that. But the way that you make it to the end is you continue to look at God's glorious grace in Christ Jesus. When you have a bad day, when you have a great day, the thing that makes you right with God is his grace and not your performance. And when you understand that, it frees you up to actually joyfully live a Christian life, to joyfully obey him because you realize my obedience has nothing to do with my standing. 
The Father has accepted me. He saved me when I was dead and I wanted nothing to do with him. How much more can I trust that he's with me to help me and strengthen me now that he's given me a heart to love him? And so as, as you're college students and you're thinking about what it looks like to, to live a Christian godly life on a secular campus, when you're sitting down in your, in, in your study with students and, and, and the conversation goes to an ungodly place, and you're like, man, what do I do? You know, you can feel kind of weird, like, do I say something? Do I get up and leave? Do I compromise? And you feel that tension. What will help you stand firm? It's God's grace. When, when you're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever and, and you really want to press in, what is, it that, what is it that you need in that moment to be faithful? It's God's grace. When you have your boyfriend or girlfriend and you guys are, are tempted to do things that don't please the Lord or, or you get angry and, and, and you're tempted to say something from your mouth that you shouldn't say or you're tempted to go to a place or do something that you shouldn't do, what is it that will help you to stand firm? It's God's grace. The grace that saves you, it trains you. Notice what it says, to renounce or deny ungodliness and worldly passions. If you continue to look to Jesus and set your mind on him and seek to, to cling to God's grace, it will train you to, to do just that. The way that you grow in godliness is by clinging to the grace of God's gospel. You might say this, well, you know, if, if grace does all the work, then what is my part in it? Well, it's kind of like this. Let's say, right, let's say I had a connection and, you know, that right through those doors I was like, hey, come on in. And LeBron James walks in, right? And he's going to give you a one-on-one -on -one tutorial of how, it, how you play basketball, right? And so he's training. He's got you running drills and you're just tired, passing out, and he's teaching you how to shoot and doing all those things. He's giving you everything you need to be a decent player. Let's, let's say even something miraculous happens. As soon as you start training, you grow like six, six inches. And instead of tripping over your feet, now you got coordination. And then all of a sudden, you can, you can shoot the ball, you can do all these things because LeBron James is training you. And at the end of that training session, maybe it's for a week, maybe it's for a month, you meet me and you know I'm kind of athletic and I'm like, all right, let's, let's see what you got. It's not enough to simply say, oh, I was trained by LeBron James. I'm going to give you a basketball. I'm going to say, now show me. That, that's what grace is. Grace is I'm going to empower you and give you everything that you need, but you still have to walk it out. You still have to apply that grace. You still have to operate in that grace. But the grace is going to help you. Second Peter chapter 1 says God's divine power has granted to us, his, his grace has granted to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. God supplies in Christ Jesus by his grace through the power of the Holy Spirit everything you need to live a life that honors him. And when you think about his grace, when you think about his gospel, when you think about who Jesus is and what he's done, you can't keep living a life of sin. There's no way you can understand grace and continue to live in habitual sin. Will you stumble? Yes. I stumble every day in many ways. But hey, and is that not the testimony of every Christian? Man, I mess up a lot, but I'm frustrated that I mess up so much. Man, I know I have these areas in my life that I need to change, these sins 
and I, I want to change, but this is so hard. Well, what is that at work in your life? That's God's grace. It's God's grace that convicts you. It's God's grace that makes you want to use your time better. It's God's grace that makes you want to talk to somebody about your relationship. It's God's grace even that makes you feel kind of awkward when, when you're in a conversation that's, 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 that's kind of going in a bad direction. God's grace teaches you and trains you to renounce ungodliness, to renounce not being mindful of God. That's what ungodliness is, when you're not mindful of who God is, right? When you can just do something and you don't even think about God, that's ungodliness. Teaches you to renounce that because you realize God is always there, loving you, looking down upon you in Christ Jesus. It teaches you to renounce worldly passions, passions that don't line up with, with the passions and the desires that God says you should have for your children. Grace teaches you to say no to that, to deny that. And it doesn't happen overnight, but over time, you'll see, just like sports, you know, over time, you keep dribbling that basketball, and you keep shooting that basketball, and you give it enough time, you'll get better. And it's the same way with God's grace. Over in week one, you might not change a lot, but you look back over five years, and you'll say, man, I got, God has graciously changed me. It teaches you negatively how to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and it teaches you positively how to live self-control. Man, that time flew. Upright and godly lives in this present age. And so it teaches you how to live in a, in a way that honors the Lord. You're upright, you're godly. You think about God in every aspect of your life. Ask yourself that question. What are the ways in my life that I don't think about God? My friends, my relationships, when I go places, when I watch things on TV, when I listen to things, to be a recipient of God's grace is to allow his, his the fact that he's there, that, that he cares about what you do and what you think and about what you say and where you go. He cares about all of those things. That's what it is to be a Christian. And when you know God cares about every aspect of your life and he's given you grace to live in a way that honors him, you begin to live a changed life. But here's the thing, and I'll close with this. The last point is how grace accomplishes it. So we see what grace is. We've seen what grace accomplishes. And now I want to show you how. Notice what it says in verse 13. It says, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify our people for his own possession, who is zealous for good works. The way grace accomplishes what it's meant to accomplish is that it, it teaches you to long for the return of Jesus. And as you think about the return of Jesus, you think about the one who's coming back specifically for you, you're also made to remember what he did specifically for you. Think about this, right? When I was a kid, you know, Christmas is coming. It's, it's the end of November, and my parents were like, if you just, just hang in there, I'm going to get you this bike. And I just couldn't wait. Like, I was just so excited. Man, I can't let me get this bike. Right around the around the house, around around the neighborhood, and I was just excited. If you understand God's grace, and you understand who it is that purchased that grace for you, that is how God is calling you to live your life. And when you realize that Jesus is going to come back for you, think about this. It won't be Jesus coming back like I'm standing here and we're all in a big group. Jesus, who loves you and gave yourself for you, will call each one of you out individually. He will look you in your eye, and he will invite you into heaven to be with him for all of eternity. 
And when you think about that reality, when you realize that he might come back tomorrow, next week, maybe it's 100 years and we're dead or gone, but he is coming back. And you will see him and be with him. And you realize that grace is what has given you that hope. It causes you to live differently. You will look at your time differently when you realize Jesus is coming back. You will live your life differently when you realize Jesus is coming back. And here's the thing that sweetens just that. He's not just coming back. He's not just your God and your Savior. He's your God and your Savior who died on the cross for your sins. Notice what it says. It says he gave himself for us to redeem us. To redeem something is to purchase it, to buy it back. You and I were so dead in our sins, so given over to the reality of death and sin that a price had to be paid to free you from that. To bring you from death to life, a price had to be paid, blood had to be spilled, and that is exactly what God, God did as he took on flesh, lived perfectly, and died on the cross for your sins. Wonder of wonder, God gives you favor that you do not deserve, and he gives it to you freely and joyfully because his son paid your price live the life that you could not live and says, now, Father, give them all the grace that you can. Lavish it upon them because I have paid for every drop, every ounce, every whatever measurement that you want to think of. I have paid for it with my blood and my life. And when you realize that that is the one who's coming back for you, that is the one who in a short while will look you in your eyes and say, enter into my kingdom, it will change the way you live your life. And so God's grace has come to you. It's appeared out of nowhere and saved you, though you deserved hell and judgment. Each and every day, his grace moves into your life to motivate you and convict you and help you to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a life that will bring honor and glory to Jesus. And then it presses you to wait as you think about the fact that my glorious Savior is coming soon and very soon. And not only is he coming for me, but I get to see the nails in his hand. I will get to see and be reminded of all that he did, the great price that was paid for me. And I will spend eternity rejoicing and meditating on that glorious reality. When that is at the depths of your soul, you cannot continue to live a life that does not honor the Lord. And here's the, the last thing in closing. God promises, he promises to do that in the life of every person in this room. His grace has saved you. His grace will sanctify you. And it will bring you all the way home. And so cling to Christ. Cling to his gospel. As you think about what it looks like to be missionaries on this campus, pray this passage for yourself. God, help me to be a missionary on this campus for your glory. Help me to live a life that leaves a legacy that says that person is different. They really love Jesus. And maybe I want to know Jesus too because I see their life. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in Christ, by your grace, we can leave legacies that honor and glorify you. And I pray that for every person in this room, that Jesus, you would be exalted. The world would know that you are real because of the quality of our life. Even when we fail and we repent, we show the glory of Jesus because our sins are forgiven in him. And so whether we succeed or whether we fail, may we live a life that makes much of the king. In his name I pray. Amen.